I'm Seth. If I haven't met some of you, I'm, I hope to. And uh, I get to serve as uh, one of the pastors here on staff, part of our preaching team. Very blessed and honored to be sharing the word of God with you today. We've been in a series called 3 a.m. And uh, 3 a.m., the subtitle is, What is Waking You Up at Night? And uh, each week we've been sharing something that God has been really stirring in our hearts, really burning within us. And the title of this message today is called Good News. Good news. Before I get into it, I have an announcement. Uh, so you heard about it on the, on the video, but uh, we have an event this Saturday morning at 10 a.m. at the State Line Speedway called Return Again. It's going to be several different churches coming together to pray. Uh, we would love to have you be with us uh, this Saturday at 10 a.m. There's something beautiful about when the church unifies, when we, when we cast down the walls that, that so easily divide us. All our little bickering and all our little, little, you know, well, you should be more like this. You should be more like this. And we come together. We worship the Lord. We pray and we contend for our country and for our communities. Yep. It's a beautiful time that I would really like you guys to be there. And if you have our time remembering information, there's going to be some little bookmarks, I think, that you can pick up on the way out today. The ushers will be handing them out. Got it. Our primary passage today is 1 Corinthians chapter 15. We're going to be there pretty much all morning long. Now, 1 Corinthians is a letter written by Paul. We know Paul the Apostle. We love Paul. Yeah. We love Paul, our brother. Now, Corinth was a kind of bustling coastal town in, um, actually, I shouldn't say was. It is. It's not as bustling as it was, but it's in modern-day Greece. My wife and I actually visited Corinth a couple years ago. It's pretty cool. It's beautiful. Uh, But in the time, it was kind of this metropolis, and like many big cities, it was a center for immorality and worldly living. And so that made its way into the church of Corinth. And so when we see this first, letter, this first letter to the Corinthians, we see quite a bit of correction that Paul is bringing uh, because of the way that worldliness has made its way into the Corinthian church. But there's also some very beautiful doctrine that is established in this letter uh, that we, we refer to and look to a lot for how the local church functions today. Now in chapter 15, Paul does this kind of peculiar thing. Paul gives us his version or his, uh, what has been downloaded to him, given to him, the gospel, the gospel according to Paul. And it's obvious that he's preached it or shared it with the Corinthians before because he's talking about reminding them of what he's already shared. We're gonna start in verse three, the gospel according to Paul in 1 Corinthians chapter 15. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. That he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. And that he appeared to Cephas, that is Peter, then to the twelve. Then he appeared to more than 500 brothers at one time, most of whom are still alive, though some have fallen asleep. We'll get a little bit more into, that's kind of a euphemism, talking about falling asleep. We'll, We'll talk about it more in a minute. Then he appeared to James, then to all the apostles, last of all, As to one untimely born, he appeared also to me. And if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile, and you are still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. They are no more. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. 
the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. For as by a man came death, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam all die, so also in Christ shall all be made alive. But each in his own order, Christ the first fruits, then at his coming those who belong to Christ. Then comes the end, when he delivers the kingdom to God the Father after destroying every rule and every authority and power. For he must reign until he has put all his enemies under his feet. The last enemy to be destroyed is death. Now for these, that is beautiful. For the, these last few verses, is, it's a bit of a tongue twister. So I'm going to just ask you to engage and stick with me. We can make it through together. Okay? We're going to hear the word subjected and subjection a whole lot. But it all has, it all has a meaning. It's all there for a reason. For God has put all things in subjection under his feet. But when it says all things are put in subjection, it is plain that he is accepted, not A-C-C-E-P-T-E-D, but E-X-C-E-P-T-E-D. Not accepted like you're accepted, but accepted like an exception. Okay. A little bit of grammar for you today. We got more grammar coming. <laughs> you just wait. He is accepted who put all things in subjection under him. When all things are subjected to him, then the Son himself will also be subjected to him, who put all things in subjection under him, that God may be all in all. We made it. Amen. Will you guys pray with me? Father, we are so grateful for your word. What a beautiful thing that you have given us this precious gift that it is living and active and sharper than any two-edged sword, dividing even between soul and spirit. So that's what we're praying for tonight, or today, this morning. That our hearts would be open wide to receive the truth of your word. So that we could be transformed from the inside out. In Jesus' name, amen. You guys agree with that? We're going to be changed today? Did anyone come here to stay the same? You're wasting your time. So um, you guys have any, any words in your life, words or phrases that you used for a, in a certain way for a long time, and then you realized, embarrassingly far into it, that you were using that word wrongly? Anyone? Me too. There are lots of them in, in the English language that people misuse a ton. I'm a little bit of a grammar nerd. I'm not perfect in my grammar, but I am nerdy in my grammar. And uh, there's, there's a few phrases that really, really grind my gears that when people use them, I go, that is not how you use that word or phrase. Now, there's one in particular that I'm going to bring up, but before I bring it up, if you use this word, I want to say beforehand, there is no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus. But... You should repent. Yep. Okay. Okay. Wow. Fair enough? Yeah. Turn. Change your mind. Change the way you use words. Okay. So this word is called irregardless. Mm, I just, my stomach just dropped. Just me saying it and it going into my ears perturbed me. Like, Seth, please don't use that word. So, uh, irregardless, you may have heard it used like this. Hey, kids, we're going to Silverwood today, irregardless of whether or not it's smoky outside. 
Now, to, to get into this a little bit and to explain why this word irks me so bad, we're going to break it down into pieces. So first, we're going to get the root of the word, regard. Regard. Regard means to have concern or, or care towards something, right? Have concern or care towards something. Good. We move on to the suffix. Suffix is less, L-E-S-S, means without or not having. Now, just with these two pieces, we have a wonderful, very useful, helpful word called regardless. Please feel free to use that as often as you desire and as, and as fits the situation. It essentially means without care for or without concern toward. Now, here's where the problem comes. There's this little prefix that people add to this wonderful, useful word called ear. Not like ear, but I-R. And I-R basically means the same thing as less. It's a little bit different, but it's, it's essentially communicating the same thing. So ear, when used as a prefix, means without or not having or the opposite of or etc. So when someone uses the word irregardless, when they're meaning to use the word regardless, they think that they're saying without concern or care for. But when they use the ear prefix, they're actually creating a double negative and saying with care or concern for. Please don't use that word. Now, there are several others in the English language that I don't have time to get into. I'll make mention of one that gets me, that I used wrong for so long, used wrongly for so long. And that is, I could care less. That doesn't make sense, when you, the way that it's used. I couldn't care less would be more appropriate. I could care less means that you care about it. You have a certain amount of care for it. So if you're meaning to say, I don't care about that, you shouldn't say, I could care less. I have a moderate amount of care for that. Anyway, we'll continue. The point is not that, this is a grammar lesson today. The point is that sometimes we use words in ways that they're not meant to be used. Sometimes words mean something different than the way that we use them. And as soon as we come to a realization that we are misusing that word, it is better that we no longer misuse that word, amen? That we use it correctly. All my teachers out there are like, especially English teachers, you're like, yes. Now, why, why, why does this matter? This matters because language communicates meaning and meaning influences what we believe. Language communicates meaning and meaning influences what we believe. How many of you believe that it's important, that what we believe is important? Amen? Now, the reason I kind of go down this direction is because I hear the word gospel used, gospel used a lot in church culture. It's a wonderful word. It's a word that we should use a lot. It's very central to the reason that we exist. But I am concerned, not all the time, but I'm concerned that when we use the word gospel in church, a lot of times, at least in the... Uh, in, in the culture that I have seen and in the circles that I have run in, that we're using it, if not in a wrong way or distorted way, we're at least using it in a very limited or incomplete way. 
Okay, I'll just say that in a limited or incomplete way. That we're catching a piece of the gospel and calling it the gospel when really it's a piece of the gospel. Now, hey Jonesy. (laughs) That's my nephew. Um, Now, this word gospel was actually a very common word in the time of Jesus. It was commonly understood before Jesus started using it. Did you guys know that? So this, this, this word, it was, it was commonly used in that culture to describe a proclamation of some great event, some major event that had occurred, okay? So this Greek word is euangelion, euangelion. You don't have to learn how to say it. I don't even, I'm not even sure I'm saying it right. Euangelion, and it's where we get the word evangelism. It actually looks a lot like the word evangelism. But what it literally means, it's, it's, it's a compound Greek word, When you break it up, it means good message, or we would know it more commonly as good news, or the gospel. Good news. Now, in the time of Jesus, the thing was that that word meant more than its literal meaning. It had more tied to it. It had some serious cultural connotation uh, in that word. And the way that euangelion would be used was actually associated with Rome, Now, why is Rome important? Because Rome was the occupying empire of Israel at the time that Jesus walked the earth. And so Jesus, like many times in his life, he actually takes a word from culture that already has an understood meaning, and he applies it in a new way. Now, euangelion at that time would be be used to describe a proclamation that that Rome had won some great victory or that Caesar had won some great victory. The ruler had won some great victory. And naturally, when when the euangelion came to a land, when it came to a land that Caesar had conquered your territory, things were bound to change. The way that you live was about to change. The way that the world worked in your community, in the area that had been conquered, was about to change. Something had happened, which means Something was changing and happening, and it pointed to something else that would eventually happen. Now, why would Jesus use a word? Jesus and his disciples use this word associated with Rome, essentially their colonizers, essentially their oppressors, in order to describe his life, his death, his resurrection, and his reign. Why would he do that? Because this story was indeed good news, but it wasn't just any good news. It was a very special kind of good news. It was a euangelion. It was a proclamation of a king winning a great victory of which the result would be everything changing about the world worked, about the way the world worked and how people lived. Does that make sense? Euangelion. This brings us back to our primary text. Now, you may have noticed that in the primary, the first text that we, that we read, I don't even think I used the word gospel. But just before, just before that, in the opening phrases of chapter 15, Paul says this. Now, I would remind you, brothers, remind, he had told it before. I would remind you, brothers, brothers, meaning I'm speaking to believers. I would remind you, fellow believers, of the gospel, the euangelion, I preached to you, which you received, in which you stand, and by which you are being saved if you hold fast to the word I preached to you. So Paul gives this introduction to the chapter that says, I'm about to tell you the gospel. And not only that, but this gospel is something that you need to remember. 
The gospel is, is, is something that you need to receive. It's something that you need to stand upon and hold fast to so that its saving power might take root in your lives. He follows this introduction, again, with a very important phrase. This is the first part of what I read earlier. For I delivered to you as of first importance what I also received. As of first importance. This gospel that Paul is about to lay out is not peripheral. It's not something that we can disagree on. It is a part of the central doctrine of Christianity. And what I found interesting is that I have grown up in the church and I've heard the term gospel a lot and I've heard many beautiful presentations of the gospel, but I had not really even considered that 1 Corinthians chapter 15 is more or less the, the gospel according to Paul. It's a very, very important passage that perhaps we should use to help us define the term gospel. It should influence the way we use that word. Then Paul gets to it. That Christ died for our sins in accordance with the scriptures. Here it is, the first statement of the gospel according to Paul. Now this statement is probably pretty familiar with us. It's probably one of the most recognizable phrases that we could use when we talk about the gospel. Christ died for our sins. Pretty familiar? Hope so. Now, this short line, again, is, it's, it's, like, it's like the hub. Imagine if the gospel were like a wheel, like a bicycle wheel. This line is it's, it's, it's like the hub of this story. It's, it's very, very central, and it's loaded with doctrine. We must affirm. This is key. We must affirm that we have sinned. Sin, what, is, what does that mean? That's a pretty churchy word. It is pretty churchy. We have fallen short. Both by decisions that we have made willfully and by a nature that we were born into, we have rebelled against God. We have rebelled against God. Now, Consequently, or the consequence of that rebellion is that we have been cut off from right relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. Our natural state. Now, from the time of humankind's first sin, God would chase after us, after humanity, by establishing what we would call covenants, these legal agreements, as it were, in a sense, with some of his servants, notable servants that you would know. Noah, Abraham, Moses, yeah, and David. I want to get him in the right order, yeah. Noah, Abraham, Moses, and David, all very key covenants that God was using to reach out his hand of fellowship to us to say, I still want to be close with you. I still want to be close with you. Oh, you messed up there. How about this? I still want to be close with you. I'll still chase you down. I'm still after your heart. And over and over again, we went, I like my way. I like my way. I like my way. Then, just at the right time. I love, I love the way that Paul says that in Romans. At just the right time. God showing his profound lavish love for us sent his son, Jesus of Nazareth. And Jesus, 
died for that sin, for that rebellion, for that falling short, for that withheld trust. Now that phrase, Jesus died for sins, or Jesus died for our sin, has been interpreted in a lot of ways over the years, and believe it or not, there's a lot of disagreement as to exactly what that means within Christianity. I don't think it's within the scope of this message today to go into atonement theories. So I'm going to try to say it in the simplest way that I can, in a way that hopefully all the atonement theories would agree with. And that is, Jesus died, and whichever biblical metaphor you want to use to try to explain it, his death took care of our sin and allowed us to be in right standing with God, with each other, and with creation. But the second part of that phrase is one that we read over so often, according to the scriptures. Yeah, according to the scriptures, duh. Yeah, I'm reading the scriptures. It's it's according to the scriptures. But that's actually communicating something very important about the gospel that Paul is preaching. Often we think about the gospel in terms of a means of our personal salvation, which it is. It has a very personal element to it, and God's plan for salvation is a part of it. But that is not its entirety. What this phrase, according to the scriptures, reminds us of is that the gospel has a very cosmic and prophetic nature to it. That this gospel had been in the works for a very long time. That it had been prophesied about to the nation of Israel for not only their deliverance and for their redemption, but for that of every nation of the world. Yes, the gospel does mean that I can be personal, personally saved in the sense that, uh, of eternal life with God by responding to his grace with my faith. Yes, that is true. But the gospel also means, very, very centrally and importantly, that Jesus is king. He's king. And that changes everything about this life. Everything about how I interact with others, everything about how I live, everything about how I think, everything about how I talk. His kingdom is near and everything is different because of it. The gospel involves me. The gospel is not about me. The gospel is about Jesus. I'm so glad that I get to take part in the story and that it's such good news to me, but it is not about me. It's about a king. Paul goes on to say that he was buried, that he was raised on the third day in accordance with the scriptures. We see that phrase again to show us that this is a part of the prophetic, long-standing, long-planned element of this gospel, according to the scriptures. It was prophesied that he would die, and it was prophesied that he would raise again. And both of these had to occur in order to authenticate Jesus as the Messiah that Israel and really all of us were waiting for. It had to happen. In the next several phrases, Paul describes the different groups of people that Jesus showed himself to once he was resurrected. We might read through this and go, why the list, man? Why is this so important? Paul is making this appeal 
to the Corinthians to go, look, Jesus, when he resurrected, showed up to over 500 people. This resurrection is not wishful thinking. It's not a myth. It's not a nice idea. It's an event that occurred, and it's the real deal. Then as we skip down to verse 17, as Paul further impacts the gospel, or further impacts the resurrection, he explains why the legitimacy of the resurrection is so central to the Christian faith. Why, why so much emphasis? If you read chapter 15, he spends probably half the chapter talking about the resurrection. Why is this so important? He says, and if Christ has not been raised, your faith is futile and you're still in your sins. Then those also who have fallen asleep in Christ have perished. If in Christ we have hope in this life only, we are of all people most to be pitied. In other words, the resurrection is not something that we have the luxury to cling loosely to as maybe a part of the core doctrine, maybe a part of the centrality of the gospel. Maybe it's just a principle. Maybe it's just an idea. No. What Paul is saying is, if God did not raise Christ from the dead in a very real and literal sense, you and I should quit this right now and probably just go live as we see fit. Because if that's the case, we don't have any hope anyway. Do not be deceived by the postmodern, loosey-goosey messages of this world that tried to turn everything about the gospel into an idea or a principle, or a nice thought, or a philosophy. They are events that happened, that happened, and as a result, everything is different from that point in history forward. Right. Yeah. But he, he quickly returns to this beautiful hope that we cling to in verse 20. But in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead. By the way, this word Christ, just, just to give you, it's not Jesus' last name. <laughs> if anyone was wondering that. Probably the closest thing to a last name he had is of Nazareth, even though that's not really. It's kind of, I mean, people referred to each other as where they were from because they're like, they have, anyways, let's just not. Christ is the Greek form of the word Messiah. Messiah uh, meaning God saves or the salvation, the salvation of God. It's, it, it, it's to communicate this very special person that is bringing about the salvation. Now, he quickly turns to this hope. Oh yeah, I, it was because I said Christ. Okay, but in fact, Christ has been raised from the dead, the first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. Now, we don't use that phrasing a lot. The first fruits of those who have fallen asleep. That sounds pretty poetic, right? Here's some other words. Essentially, Jesus is our pioneer and our forerunner in the resurrection. He is the one who went before us, and the beautiful thing is his resurrection points to our resurrection. This falling asleep speaks to now, because of what Jesus has done and because of the resurrection, that there is a temporalness. I don't know if that's the right word. Temporality? Temp there, there, there is this, this idea that falling asleep is a better term even than maybe die right. because it is not right. forever. Yes. Falling asleep to one day wake up. He is our forerunner in this falling asleep and waking up. Then Paul appeals to Genesis. I love this part because he brings it all the way back to the beginning. I love Genesis. 
He says, for as by a man came death, by a man has also come the resurrection of the dead. For as in Adam, Adam, we know Adam from Genesis, from the garden. We like him. He messed up. We like him. We would have messed up too, by the way. So also in Christ shall all be made alive. Now, these two verses are of incredible importance because they, they bring us back actually and show us once again how far this gospel really extends, how long it's been in the working. They remind us that in the garden, God spoke creation into existence and he called it good. And then he made man and woman and he called it very good. That is very good. Humanity was in right relationship with God, each other, and creation. When Paul says, for as by a man came death and for as in Adam all die, he speaks to what we call the fall. This is a very sobering and sad part of the story, but it is part of the story. It is a part of the gospel. The fall is a part of the gospel. If we don't understand the fall, if we don't understand the need for the gospel, it's very hard to receive it. This communicates the need. It's the part when humanity first withheld their trust from God and disobeyed him as a result of that withheld trust. And in doing so, stepped into a profound state of brokenness of relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. Oh, what? Seth, why do you, I know with God, but why do you say, do you remember? This woman you gave me immediately sin infiltrated the way we interacted with everything. This woman you gave me, enmity. But when Paul says, by a man has come also the resurrection of the dead, and so also in Christ shall all be made alive, he speaks to this wonderful reality that the fall no longer has its grip on us. That the curse of sin and death has been broken by because of what Jesus has done. And now we have hope in eternal life. That through the work of Jesus, we have access to whole, shalom, restored relationship with God, with each other, and with creation. Next, Paul clarifies. But each in his own order. Christ the firstfruits, then in his coming, those who belong to Christ. Paul makes clear here a very, uncomfortable, a very uncomfortable part of the news. All those who have died will indeed be raised. Did you know that? Everybody is going to be raised. But everybody is also going to be judged. And it will only be those who have placed their trust in Jesus, who will experience eternal life with the Father, with God. And for those who were resolute on dwelling in separation from God in this life, for those, that separation will infinitely intensify and echo for all of eternity. And that horrific existence we call hell. Finally, Paul gives us a picture of the grand culmination of all things. After those who are in Christ are resurrected from the dead and, and they are 
given this, this wonderful inheritance of the kingdom, when death is destroyed and everything has been put in subjection under the feet of Jesus, then Jesus will subject himself to the Father so that God may be all in all. This is the gospel. This is the euangelion, the good news that changes everything. It's far more than a transactional exchange of a death for a pardon. It's far more than a decision with the motivation of avoidance of a punishment. It's much bigger than that. It is the proclamation that Jesus is the reigning king and that we have been invited to respond to him with our trust, with our love, and with our loyalty. I've heard it maybe even better said, with our allegiance. If we will give him that, and what a joy it is to give him that. He'll call us his friend. He'll bring restoration where relationship has been broken. His Holy Spirit will indwell and empower us. And we will experience life and life abundantly in this time and in the resurrection for all eternity. You stand with me. I share this good news with you today partially because there may be some here in fact, I hope there are some here that maybe have not received this gospel and given themselves wholly to Jesus. If you have not embraced Jesus as Lord, as Savior, Messiah, as reigning King, risen King, we want to give you that opportunity today. Now, you may be wondering, why in church... Do we like do this whole thing where there's an invitation given and then people raise their hands and then, and then we, we connect? Let, let me just explain something to you. First of all, I, I wanna give you two good reasons why we do this and why it's so important. One, Jesus says, if you acknowledge me before man, I will acknowledge you before the Father. Amen. See, in this, in this postmodern world, we go, see, spirituality is just all about just inside and yourself. It's just between you and God. Don't talk about it. Just experience it, man. <laughs> just to buy it, bro. <laughs> Whatever. That was a little, maybe that was a little much. <laughs> That's totally anti-biblical, by the way. There's no version of the gospel, of the New Testament, of the instruction that the Bible gives us that has us living in good, restored, plan for our life relationship with God outside the community of faith. See, God is beautifying for himself a bride. And you, individually, are not it. You ain't it. We are it. So that second reason that what I'm talking about is part of the gospel is not only that this this has been reconciled and made whole, but that this has an opportunity to be reconciled and made whole. And that is part of God's plan for this world is that his people would be one. John 17, Father, would you make them one even as we are one? The reason why we have you identify yourself 
and why we want to connect with you and be with you is because a decision is made individually. There is a need for an individual decision to begin this journey with Christ. But as soon as you take step one, immediately it should be arm in arm with the family of God. We weren't made to take even one step in the journey alone. We say, yes, Jesus, and we're surrounded. Surrounded by the people of God. So that's why we have you do that. That's why we have people raise their hands. That's why we encourage you to go in the corner afterward and connect with someone because the journey of discipleship is what each one of us are called to. God has so much more for you than one decision on a Sunday. And then you go and, and what? Go into all the world and make disciples, not decision makers. Go into all the world and make disciples, wholehearted followers of Jesus, those who would walk this journey with me in intimate relationship, those who would be my people, those who would be my bride, those who would do this together. The Bible doesn't say the gates of hell will not prevail against Logan. The Bible says the gates of hell will not prevail against my church. My church.